I don't know that I can overstate my appreciation for your willingness to open your ears to what I have to say. Uh, with this understanding that uh, my ideas are not my ideas, I, I, I glean these ideas from, uh, from the Word of God. At times I uh, trust on other writers and, and preachers to add to, to my understanding of the Word of God. But all this to say is that I am grateful that you would come and listen and then take these truths to heart and apply them to your lives. Uh, we started last week in a discussion about serving God, about how to improve your serve to God. And this morning we're going to run over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And here in Mark chapter 3, there is a huge crowd of people. A huge crowd of people pressing on Jesus Christ. Uh, what's interesting is that the religious leaders of the day were really upset because John the Baptist had gleaned quite a group of people, masses of people, uh, to listen to him and be baptized by him. And the leaders did not care for what John the Baptist was saying or doing. And so they arrest him, they behead him, and now comes Christ. And Christ is gathering even larger crowds. More people are coming to him. The following is significantly greater in the commotion, well, you can imagine. And in this case, in Mark chapter 3, and by the way, you'll find a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12. In Mark chapter 3, there is a huge crowd pressing up against Jesus Christ to the point in which Jesus Christ fears being crushed. That's how many people grabbing at him and pressing on him. And as I was reading, I was reminded of a time in which I was faced with a crowd. Uh, they were not looking to, uh, to, to know me. Uh, they were looking to know, to get a signature from a famous soccer player by the name of, well, his real name, uh, his name is really pronounced Pelé. You probably know him as Pelé, but it's Pelé. And he was a Brazilian soccer player, arguably the greatest soccer player uh, in the history of the sport. He started his pro professional career at the age of 16, and in the process he scored 1,281 goals. He certainly did electrify the game of football, as we would say, soccer, as we say here. Well, I, I did get a chance to meet Belen, and... He had just written a crime novel. I wasn't really interested in a crime novel written by a Brazilian soccer player. But I was interested in meeting him, and I was at the time living in Chicago and going to school there when a friend knocked on my door and said, guess who's just downtown about a mile away? And he told me, Pelez, there, signing books. Let's go and get a picture with him. And I said, sure. So we got in the car, we drove downtown, and we uh, figured we'll just park right in, get a picture, and come back out. Well, there was no place to park. We drove around block after block after block, no place to park whatsoever. Finally, we said, you know what, let's just double park and run in. And, and that's exactly what we did. We put it uh, double parked right under the elevated railroad. And we ran into the bookstore figuring we're going to be quick. We'll come right back out, never get a ticket. Nobody will be bothered by it. And we get into the bookstore, and lo and behold, it seemed like all of Chicago was there. It was a line that just wound around the bookstore and everybody had a book in their hand everybody wanted to get an autograph and so I said what do we do I'm going to get a ticket 
So I went to the front of the line, and in Portuguese, I said to Pelé's trainer, Professor Masi, I whispered in his ear, I said, Professor, would it be okay if I just come in the back here? I won't bother anybody. I just want to get a quick picture and we'll leave. He was a little hesitant. He said, okay. And as I step back there, Pelé looks up and says, Oh, meu amigão. Oh, my big friend. And he gives me a big hug and we get this picture. <laughs> and of course, everybody in the line was yelling at me, get in the back of the line, get in the back of the line. And so we just waved and off we went. I never even got a parking ticket. Jesus Christ was faced with this huge crowd that wanted to see him too. And what a crowd it was. People who were just marveling at the reality that, could it be the Messiah is actually here? Also, there were those people who were sick and wanted to be healed. There were even people who were demon-possessed. And Christ was casting these demons out. And it was quite a sight. As they fell to the ground, the demons were crying out, Son of God. Jesus Christ was certainly able and he did heal many of these people. However, his main interest was not in what he could do for them physically. His main goal was to teach them the truth about God, the Messiah, and about redemption. Not how can I heal your body, but how can I heal your soul? And so in order to be able to speak to them and to keep from being crushed, what they did is they developed a, a pulpit that would float. They took a boat and they put it out in the water in the Sea of Galilee and Jesus Christ spoke from there. It would be very hard for people to get to that boat. It would be very hard for those who were sick to get to the boat. And it's not that Jesus Christ didn't care about the sick. It's that there was something of even greater importance and that was food for their soul. And many people listened as Christ spoke to them words of life. As Christ spoke to them about what they must do in order to be born again. As Christ spoke to them about who he was. But it's an amazing scene if you were to read for yourself, and I would recommend you do, Mark chapter 3. And what you'll notice is that in Mark chapter 3, there are five different scenes. And this morning, we're not going to look at all five, but we will emphasize just two. If you look at verses 7 through 12, you see there's a scene at the sea. That's the second one. And then the third scene is beginning at verse 13, uh, Jesus Christ on a mountain. And then a fourth scene, beginning at verse 20, Jesus Christ at home. Well, as I said, I, wanna, I want to spend some time in that second scene and then the or rather the third scene and then the fourth scene in the mountain and the home and then just touch a little bit more on what we see happening with Jesus Christ when he's along the Sea of the Galilee. So let's begin there. Well, maybe I should read to you beginning at verse 11 just so we would be better familiarized with the text. It reads this way. Chapter 3 of Mark, verse 11. And whenever the clean, unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Does that surprise you? It does me. 
Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Well, let's take a look at verses 13 through 19. And there you see Jesus Christ on the mountain. Again, what I want you to see here is how we can improve our service to God. As you all know, there are many religions in this world. There are many false religions in this world. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 16, We see here the distinction between Christianity, biblical Christianity, and all the religions of the world. This is what John 15, 16 reads. This is Christ speaking to these 12 disciples he chose. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that that your fruit should abide, that your fruit should last. There are approximately... 20 major world religions. And within the population of this world, which is around uh, just over 8 billion people, approximately 1.2 billion people believe in nothing. They have no religion. And so most of them, if not all of them, would would be atheists. They have no religion, which, by the way, uh, constitutes a religion in and of itself. So with 1.2 billion people saying they have no religion, that would be about 14% of the world. But of all the religions in this world, only one religion, only one faith is based on grace. Only one. And as you all know, that's biblical Christianity. Christianity, different than all the other religions in this world, teaches that God gives to us what we do not deserve. It teaches that we do not only not deserve it, but we can never deserve it. In other words, we can never do enough to deserve God's love or to deserve God's salvation. We could keep trying, but we'll never actually attain, we could never merit God's goodness. That is to say that God does not look down on this world to see who's better. He does not look and say, well, there's a pretty good person there. He's better than the rest. Well, we'll make him a Christian. Or here's another person. She's been doing pretty well these last few years. Let's call her to ourselves, to the Trinity. No, he simply sees us for who we are, sinners. It's not to say that some of us are not talented or skillful. It's not to say that some of us are not kinder, uh, more gentle, more gracious towards other people. It's not to say that we don't have particular abilities that others don't or that we excel. That's not the point. 
The point is this. At the end of the day, all of us here are broken in sin. We are sinners. And that's what God sees when he sees us. And he takes that sinner and he says to that sinner, I will make you righteous. I will make you my own. I will make you my disciple. And that's what he's done with us. Why do we worship him? Because he said, I will make you my own. I'll make you righteous. Romans 8 says, I foreknew you. I chose you to be mine. This is the nature of biblical Christianity, my friends. All other faiths, all other religions say, say that we must earn God's favor. And that if you earn God's favor, you are more likely than to be redeemed. So your goal should be to be better than the person next to you. And maybe you'll be saved. Grace, on the other hand, says quite the opposite. It says that God grants you his favor because he chose to love you. Out of his kindness. John 3.16. And billions over history have taken Christ up on this offer and have come to know him as redeemer, as lover, as savior. Here we have in verse 13 of Mark chapter 3, Christ is escaping the crowds and he now withdraws from the boat, that pulpit boat, to the mountainside close by. And you'll notice there that he calls to himself those he desires to come to him. From a larger crowd of followers, Christ appoints those we often refer to as the 12 disciples. Again and again, you'll see in the scriptures a reference to the 12 disciples. Sometimes they're referred to as the 12. Uh, at times, even after Judas Iscariot, so now there's 11, they're still referred to as the 12. We know who they're talking about, who the writer's speaking of. So Christ appoints these and, and he says that you are going to be my apostles. Uh, the word apostle means the ones that are going to be sent out, sent out ones. But we learn in due time that they are not only being sent out by God, but they also have a particular authority within the church of Jesus Christ. But here we see very clearly that they're going to be the sent out ones. They're going to be the leaders within uh, the fold of Jesus Christ. And it's a very awkward group. But keep in mind that Jesus Christ did choose them. Again, John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Uh, fruit that will last. And here, verse 13, it makes it clear. Who did he choose? It says, whom he desired. It was his choice from within that crowd. Who would be his disciples? And I want you to notice here that it is a very strategic plan being carried out. Jesus Christ was very strategic in choosing these 12. However, you'll notice that these were, by and large, ignorant, unlearned men who really had nothing whatsoever to offer to God. Nothing. Most of them were fishermen. These were men that after three and a half years with Jesus Christ are going to be the leaders of the church. 
And now as a part of this intimate team who will now minister alongside of Jesus Christ, they will be ones who will see Jesus Christ constantly, both publicly and privately. They will hear all, they will see all. This was going to be their apostolic training. Christ called them, Christ chose them, Christ appointed them, these twelve. And I want you to notice something very important here in terms of being a better servant of God. These men are going to see Christ up close. Uh, There's a particular training that comes to anybody who follows Christ through the companionship, through communion and intimacy with the Savior. It is impossible to serve God well if you don't spend time in communion with the Lord, if you lack intimacy. This is what is going to be provided physically and literally for these 12 men. And my friends, it's something we ought to seek out as well. If we are going to better serve our God, what a lesson that is for us. And yes, as I said, it was strategic. He had a very definite plan. But notice that in his plan, he chose Judas Iscariot. Back a long time ago, when I was a, when I was a junior in high school, my English teacher, knowing that there were several Christian teenagers in his class, took it upon himself to ridicule Christianity. He was very much against Christ and the Christian faith. And he just inserted in his lesson plan that day that Jesus Christ was not very intelligent. And one young Christian boy raised his hand and said, what do you mean? He said, well, if Christ was intelligent, he would have not chosen Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. And unfortunately, he was able to convince this young man, but not the rest of us. I would say it's quite the opposite. In fact, I did tell him. I said, sir, because Jesus Christ was intelligent, he chose Judas Iscariot. You see, Christ very well knew the purpose for why he came. He came to die. He came to be crucified in our place. And so he chose Judas Iscariot because it is Judas Iscariot that would get the ball rolling to fulfill the purpose for Christ's coming. You see, it was very strategic. It was very wise. Judas would put redemption into motion. But what a unique group they were. Twelve. Twelve men who would later provide us the New Testament. And here we see that they are given apostolic authority and apostolic power. The twelve. Just as Israel had twelve tribes, so now Christ appoints twelve apostles who will bring God's people into this new covenant. And again, it is by his choosing. He called them to himself, and look, they came. He called them, and they came. The point being that when Christ effectively calls you, whoever, whomever Christ effectively calls will come to him. His grace is irresistible because our God is sovereign. And he empowers these servants. 
He names them apostles, those who will be sent out. And he gives to them a particular ability. First is the ability to proclaim, to preach about Jesus Christ. And when they go out to preach, they're very much enabled because Christ enabled them. But he also gives them a supernatural authority even to cast out demons. Impressive. Uh, We see later that in some cases they were even able to raise the dead. And they will do what Christ was doing. And they, they are doing exactly what Christ was doing, even within the realm of the supernatural. Now, why were they given this ability? Well, it was in order to confirm that they were being sent out by Christ. They are doing what Christ was doing. It was a confirmation that Christ sent them. Now, notice something which I think is of particular interest. Of the twelve, we have also Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the man who never believed in Christ. Uh, He too is a part of the twelve, and he too is empowered to preach and to have even the ability over demonic entities. Notice something I think is very important for us to understand here. They were not given this ability to prove to anybody that they were in Christ, but rather it was to prove that they were sent by Christ. Christ was not saying, look, here are believers, they could cast out demons. No. Christ is saying, look, here are my apostles, they do what I do. Big difference. Not all were necessarily followers of Christ. We know one was not, though he was strategically chosen by Christ and sent out by Christ. In fact, just for a little more emphasis, let me read to you from Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 21. You'll remember these words from Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. Christ said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, this is Christ speaking, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Well, I do want you to see here the differences uh, in these these brothers, the, the, these men who are working alongside of Jesus Christ, you have quite a contrast. You have, uh, for example, Simon uh, the Zealot. You know what a zealot was, right? He, he was a, a nationalist. He was a patriotic freedom fighter. And then on the other hand, you had Matthew or Levi, who was a tax collector, who worked for Rome which meant that he was a traitor. Now you have this Jewish zealot and a traitor living side by side, day by day. Why? Because Christ transformed them. Amazing, isn't it? What does that say about us? How we can get along, ought to get along, as a church, or as brothers, or sisters, or husband and wife. If Simon the Zealot and Matthew could live alongside of each other, 
how much more than should we? Now, some scholars estimate that these 12 men were teenagers. Uh, Certainly, I I would say that they were young adults. Uh, These were not elderly, experienced men. Eventually, they will become just that. But at this point, they're still young in life. And all except for one were from Galilee, the northern region of Israel, which was essentially the blue-collar region of the country. All except for, of course, Judas Iscariot. Now, it's believed that he was from the far south. And most of them were fishermen. And if they were not fishermen, eventually they all become fishermen in John chapter 21. The list begins with, with Simon. Simon nicknamed Peter. The word Peter means rock. That's the nickname Jesus Christ gave to him, the rock. Says something about him, doesn't it? Jesus Christ listened to him, hung out with him for a while, said, you know what name I'm going to give you? The Rock. And and then there is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Apparently Zebedee was the the owner of the fishing business. And he lost a few employees that day when Jesus Christ came by. He lost Peter, he lost James, his son James and John as well. And they're referred to as the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. It gives you an idea of what they were like, doesn't it? When Peter, James, and John were in a room, everybody knew it. You have the rock and the sons of thunder. Then there was Andrew, that's Peter's brother. Then there's Philip. We see Philip uh, um, uh, later on in in, in Acts chapter 8 in the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. Then there's Bartholomew, uh, we we otherwise know as Nathaniel, Nathaniel Bartholomew. Bartholomew means the son of Tholomew. Anytime you see the word bar something, Barnabas, it means the son of Nabus. Then we have Thomas, who was nicknamed Didymus, which means a twin. He had a twin brother. And so sometimes they call him Tom, sometimes Tommy, but usually it was Didymus. I remember growing up with a a pair of twins. They were identical. No one could ever tell them apart. So we used to call them, well, in Spanish, dado, which means dice. They looked exactly alike. That was their nickname, Dice. And they always knew who you're talking to. And um, that's the way it was. Then there was James, the son of Alphaeus. Judas, nicknamed Thaddeus. Thaddeus appears to refer to a very gentle and tender-hearted person. Quite the opposite of the sons of thunder. And then again, Simon the Zealot. And again, a zealot was a guerrilla patriot fighter determined to take back Israel from the Romans. And then there was Matthew, otherwise known as Levi, who was employed by the Romans, and he was a tax collector, and tax collectors were cheats. When Matthew finally came to Christ, he could not resist the call of Christ. He left everything behind, and later he paid everything he stole back, plus more. Transformed life. And then at the bottom of the list, number 12, is, of course, Judas. 
Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus Christ, verse 13. By our human analysis, these, these men here were the most poorly selected band of brothers ever. In fact, I would suggest to you that if these resumes were submitted to, let's say, a, a headhunter, he would have looked at the 12 and said, you know, of all the 12, I only would recommend one, Judas Iscariot. He's a quick thinker. He's self-motivated. He knows people in high places. And he's pretty good with money. The others, no way you could use him, them. Well, what's the point here, my friends? The point is that Christ calls us to himself. Christ calls you. And when Christ calls you, here's the best advice I could give to you. Come to him. When Christ calls, come. Do not ignore his call. Do not resist his grace. Do not fear what will happen to you if you were to come to him. Instead, fear what will happen if you do not come to him. Come as you are and serve God. Christ will make you into who you need to be. He will use his word. He will use his power to change you as you allow his charge to be over your soul. And he will mold you and he will form in you the character it takes to be able to serve him well and to please our God. Do not come to him because of what you think you can offer him. Come to him with empty hands. Come just as you are. Serve God just as you are. Judas Iscariot is always on the bottom of the list. Whenever you see the list of the disciples, Judas is always on the bottom of the list. And I believe it's to remind us of how close we could be to Christ and yet so far. We could be so close, so up close, and yet be so far from him. Being close only counts in cornhole. It doesn't count when it comes to knowing Christ. Uh, What you believe and how you live really does matter. It really does. It is not sufficient to simply be close to the truth. You must embrace the truth. You must believe the truth. And you'll notice that Peter is always at the top of every list of the disciples. It's a reminder of how God is able to take a mess of a follower and transform him into a rock. He could do that with you if you come to him. So my friends, come to Christ just as you are. Begin by placing your faith in him Flee from your sin. We call that repentance. And come to Christ as one who wants to serve him. Please him. Someone who wants to place yourself under his rule. Improve your serve. Know Christ. Come to Christ.
and begin to serve him. The text takes us then at verse 20 to yet a different scene, and that's at the home, at the home. And the truth is, we don't know exactly whose home this is. It's probably Peter and Andrew's home because it seems to be a frequent place where Christ lays his head. Peter's home. I don't believe it's referring to his own home. Uh, it, it appears that at this point the actual home of Jesus Christ is in Nazareth where his mother and siblings reside. Keep in mind that Jesus Christ does have siblings. At this point, here in chapter 3, Jesus Christ is about 30 years of age. And what we see is that in verse 31, he does have siblings. In fact, if you go over three more chapters to chapter 6, you see the names of his brothers. He has a brother named James, he has a brother named Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and he has at least two sisters as well. Where is Joseph? Uh, The last time we see Joseph in the scriptures is when Jesus Christ is 12. Here he is 30, and it appears that Joseph has passed away at this point. Well, he takes his 12 disciples to this home, his select 12. And and here they will begin their apprenticeship. Uh, This is where they're going to see Christ up close. There's going to be this intimacy that will not only train them in serving Christ, but it will compel them to serve Christ. Intimacy with God compels us to serve Christ. The more I know him, the more I love him, the more I love him, the more I want to serve him. And in verse 20, Though Christ has moved away from the Sea of Galilee, he has gone to the house where he would rest. The crowds follow him. In fact, look at verse 20. It says, so many came and so many were pressing on him that they could not even eat. They were just clamoring. He couldn't pause for lunch. They just wanted more from him. Demanding, pressing, pleading. And this, surprisingly, is when the family of Jesus Christ jumps in. They step in, having heard of all the commotion. Here the text says that the family of Christ went out. Verse 21, the family of Christ went out to rescue him. Now, let me be honest with you here. If you were to read verse 21 in the original language, it does not say family. The Greek word there means those who belong to him or those who are close to him. It's not the word family. But we interpret that to mean his family. Now in chapter 6 we see very clearly his family. and In fact we see their names as well. Well here his family wanted to rescue him. In fact the text says they wanted to seize him. Um, People were pressing and demanding of him. It had become dangerous to the point of potentially being crushed. And so his family comes to rescue, to seize him. They wanted to grab him out from those crowds. They wanted to stop the absurdity. But to my surprise, notice there verse 21. Notice there the family's opinion of Jesus Christ. They did not believe in him. And they said, referring to his own, their own brother, he is out of his mind. 
He's insane. Now, they're not necessarily saying, don't listen to him. He's a crazy man. No, I don't think that's the case at all. After all, they heard and they witnessed the miracles as well. They knew their brother's uh, piety. They knew what kind of a brother they had been. He had been over all the years. They never saw their brother do anything wrong. He never sinned. They knew it. But nonetheless, they're not convinced that he is the Messiah. And here they fear for him. They fear that he is overworked and that all this work is destabilizing him mentally. They were very affectionate. They wanted to rescue their big brother. But their affections were misplaced. Misplaced affections. How can this be, they said. This is my brother. This is my son. This can't go on. His family indeed was concerned for him, but they failed to understand him. So close, and yet so far. Now, in contrast, go back to verse 11. Verse 11, where we started in our reading. His own family did not acknowledge him, did not recognize that he is indeed the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. However, look at verse 11. The demons understood the identity of Jesus Christ. And they cried out, you are the Son of God. But those who were closest to him did not. Surprise you? And what we see here, verse 12, is also, I think, very surprising. Jesus Christ turns to these demons and says, Do not tell them who I am. Don't reveal to anyone who I am. Now, why would he do that? In fact, humanly speaking, wouldn't it be to the advantage of Jesus Christ to have these entities from the other world profess Jesus Christ as being the Son of God? Well, humanly speaking, it would make good sense. But instead, Christ tells them, shh, be silent, don't tell anybody. Well, Beg adds some clarity here, and he notes that Jesus Christ does not need the affirmation of demons in order to be understood to be the Messiah. He doesn't need the affirmations of fallen angels to prove who he is. Rather, his own actions and own words will prove who Christ is. But more importantly, when these demons are crying out, you are the Son of God, keep this in mind, that unless you know the purpose of Jesus Christ, Unless you identify the Son of God as the one who comes to rescue people from their sins, unless you understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come in order to be the suffering Savior who comes to take away the sins of the world, then, if you don't recognize that, then Son of God means nothing. Then Son of God will be whatever you want it to be. You will ascribe your own meaning to that title. 
If people don't understand what Son of God means, then they will come to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with unrepentant hearts. They're going to come to him without faith in Christ, without rejection of the world. They're going to come to Christ and say, well, you're the Son of God. This is what I expect from you. This is what you can do for me. This is what I demand you do for me. When Jesus Christ is really interested in one priority, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I have come to save you from your sins, to redeem your soul, to give you life and life abundant. Son of God means nothing unless you know him as the one who comes to take away your sins upon placing your faith in Christ. Otherwise, Jesus Christ is only going to be the Son of God, the healer, or the miracle worker, or the peace talker, or the conqueror of the Roman government, which is what so many people expected. The restorer, well, you name it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will be whoever you want him to be, when in reality he is the one who has come to be crucified for your sins. The twelve disciples would slowly learn this, my friends. And as they learned what it means to serve Jesus Christ, they would learn that Jesus Christ is all about the Son of God and Him crucified. One week at a time, they learned this. <coughs> Let me close by saying this. Serving God is a proclamation that Jesus Christ has come to save man from sin. And that he calls us then to come to him by faith and place ourselves under the beauty of his rule. I have come not to give you a heavy yoke, he said, but to give you freedom. And that's what Christ does to all those who come to him. You know, the church needs more proclaimers. The church needs more servants. As the world becomes darker and darker, we need more people who will be the proclaimers of the day. Living alongside of a world that's fallen, and sometimes there's very little obvious difference between them and us, except for your fruit. Your fruit. The church of Christ is about servants who will declare the reality of Jesus Christ with your words and with your actions. My friends, let's improve our service to God. Let me pray.